excited to jump in the Word with you this morning. And before I do that, um, I want to share a little bit about families and about generational ministry. I was at a pastor's conference with Pastor Mike Hayes. He's the pastor of Covenant Church in Dallas. I don't know, they're like 10, 15,000. And uh, he was talking about how we're on thin ice as a church when it comes to our kids inheriting our ministries. That there's not a lot of biblical examples of that in the New Testament. You don't read a lot about Peter's son or any of the apostles' children taking their parents' place in the kingdom. And he said even when you look in the Old Testament, it's also, you know, very rare. You, you might be able to make an argument for like Abraham, you know, Israel and Jacob, those guys. But at the, for the most part, you just don't see that generation generational uh, leadership. And so I've been really intentional about my children and what I'm exposing them to. You know, my husband has a certain career and then I'm in the ministry. So we talk about our jobs because we thought, you know what, what a better place to learn than around the dinner table, you know, and let's, let's just see how we live life and, and see what God has on my children's lives as far as a destiny as a call, because I want to blow on those embers. I want to fan those things and help God bring that about in their lives. You have those same dreams for your children, that you want to partner with the Holy Spirit in that. And so um, my kids, it's, it's been interesting. I have two children. My daughter's going to be nine on Wednesday. I can't believe it. I have a nine-year-old. And I have a six-year-old. And actually, here's a picture of my kids. You can see them. Look, see, aren't they so happy? This was Easter Sunday where everybody makes that little bit of extra effort. We put a hair bow in. You know, you make sure that dress is pressed. One Sunday a year we do that (laughs) with the Stevens. And they're there. They're happy. But this is the thing. You guys know about how I have the ministry of the awkward moment. Well, I've been trying to test to see if that's genetic to see if my kids maybe have a little bit of that. And so sure enough, the way it is with pastor's kids, they'll be perfect at home. You see how happy we are? We get on 6565 Research Forest Drive, and look what happens. Headlock. (laughs) Right here, Easter Sunday. My kids will wait until all of you are gathered someplace in this building at the grocery store, and then they'll show you what it's really all about, how much they love each other. We hug with headlocks. Well, the other thing, you know, I've been working with my son. He, he has a bit more of my personality than my daughter. And you know how kids get in, in school, they make those little special books for you as a mom. You know, at Mother's Day or at Valentine's Day. And really, moms, that's our pay. The peanut butter jelly sandwiches, the midnight feedings, it's all about that little drawing your kid makes that nobody else knows what it is. But you know in your heart, exactly what that is and that your child loves you. And I struck pay dirt when my son was in kindergarten. He came home with this little book saying, it's the I love you book. And I found it because everybody knows you rifle through your kids' stuff, right? As soon as they get home, you like go through their book bag, you know, and the kid's in kindergarten. But I'm looking, you know, what are homework and oh, I've got to get the PTO money and, you know. And I found this I love you book. And I look on the page course it was on page 12 so it took a little while to get there but I love you mom and dad which I think that's dad and I was excited I'm wearing a pink dress sure I'm a little thick in the middle but look how skinny my arms and legs are I said mama needs that a swimsuit season baby and then look at dode and that is truly Todd has about that much hair on his head so it's very realistic and I thought to myself my son loves me. I have hit pay dirt. Thank you, Jesus. It's all been worth it. Five years of investment, and I made it to a stick figure. 
And then I, I put it back in my son's folder, and I want him to bring it to me. I don't want to be, you know, that mom that makes a big deal out of it. You know, I want to be cool about it. And so I'm like, hey, Owen, what'd you make in school today? How was school? It was a good thing. I said, well, what do you love? Did you make something about what you love? Bring me your folder. And he brings me his folder, and I've got it closed. And I said, what do you love, Owen? He says, Mom, I really love my bike. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, okay, okay. He's just forgotten because it's been like 20 minutes since school let out. He wants to get on that bike. We're cool. We're cool. I said, no, Owen, tell me what you really love. Let's open up your folder. I said, look, Owen, you love your mom and dad. He's like, Mom, I love my bike. I'm like, kid, you wrote it. I know you love your mom and dad. And he flips it over to the front, and he said, things I love. Mom, Wade, Wade loves his mom and dad. <laughs> My kid brought home the wrong craft. He said, Wade loves his mom and dad. I still love my bike. I was like, what? I said, okay, you go ride on that bike, that bike I bought. Dad, put it together. You will get on it, pedal it. See if it tucks you in tonight. <laughs> and Wade, Wade's parents, if you are here at Celebration Church, I never gave that back. <laughs> you were in Miss Meinhold's class in kindergarten. I erased Wade's name, wrote Owen with my left hand, and stuck that thing in the baby book. Because <laughs> I tell you what, Owen loves his parents, and I got something to prove it, even if it is a forgery. <laughs> But this is the ministry, the generational ministry. And if we're handing our baton to our children. Now, my kids go to Powell Elementary. So I work here at the church 8 to 3, Monday through Friday. And so when the school bell rings, they just walk across that little sidewalk and they meet me here in the office. And sometimes I got to tie up some loose ends. So they've got the run of the building for 20 minutes. My kids, like their mother, manage to find themselves in the craziest situations and one day I got a text message and a picture of my kid. My son had found a closet full of plungers. <laughs> the first question I asked was, please tell me that those are not used. <laughs> and thank God they're not on his face. It could have been worse. But um, if that does not say youth pastor, what does? I mean, that kid has, has youth ministry written all over it. <laughs> And that's just, I mean, that's how it is in La Casa Stevens, Team Stevens. You know, we are looking to pass that baton of ministry on to our children. So y'all get ready in about 10, 20 years. It's going to be exciting around here. So with that, I'm excited to jump in the word with you guys this morning. And I've got a message for you that I know is for you. I know the Lord has this word for every single person in this room. And we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 7 together this morning. If you have brought your Bible, if not, don't worry. We're going to have everything for you on the screen. But the message I have to share with you guys is titled, When the Waiting Becomes a Wait. When the waiting, waiting for God to move, waiting for something that you've, you've brought to the throne and waiting for that thing to come, when the anticipation, the expectation of that thing goes from waiting to wait. You know, when you read in the Old Testament about Abraham and how he went and was called by God to offer his son as a sacrifice, it tells us in Genesis that right before he offered Isaac on the altar, that the angel of the Lord stopped him. And that God introduced himself for the first time to mankind as Jehovah Jireh, 
the God who provides. Well, when you break that down in the Hebrew, it's a better translation is actually the God who will see to it. Well, that totally blew my mind because I don't know about you, but I have a lot of it's in my life. We all have different it's in this room. There is something that you are trusting God to see to that no human hand can do for you. You are just taking it to your Savior and saying, God, I don't know how you're going to do it. I don't know what pieces you're going to move. I don't know how things are all going to line up. But you are the God who will see to it, and that is what I need you to do. We all have a different it in this room. And everybody's it is unique to them. And no it is harder than anybody else's. No it is more difficult for God to achieve. Everybody's it is different. But here's the thing. Our rest is supposed to be all the same because we all serve the same Savior. So we've all seen the bookmarks and the fridge magnets that quote Isaiah 40, 31. It says, those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up like wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. You've heard that verse. You've seen it on a bumper sticker. You've seen it at the Christian bookstore. Now here's the thing. When I'm waiting for my it, when I'm waiting for God to move on my behalf, I got to be honest with you guys, I don't look like an eagle riding marathon runner. I do not look like the person Isaiah 40:31 is describing. I often look like somebody whose hair's on fire, whose eyes are bugging out of her head, who's dragging this it like a hundred pound anvil behind me saying, it has to happen, it has to happen. But here's the thing. What I should look like is rested and renewed because God's promise to me is that when I wait on him, I'm mounting up with wings as eagles. I'm running and not growing weary. I'm walking and not fainting. How is it that every believer in this room has a different it, but not every believer in this room is experiencing the same rest? And I want to talk to you this morning about what we can do as a body, how we can walk out of here and not feel like we've got the world on our shoulders, but we can remain in a place where we can wait on the Lord instead of a place where we're carrying this weight of what we think we need to bring to God that's about to choke us to death. So that's what I want to share with you this morning, all right? So we're going to jump in Isaiah 7, and I'll give you a little bit of background. This is a story about a king named King Ahaz. And King Ahaz was a very, very evil man. Scripture tells us that he made his son walk through fire as a sacrifice to this pagan god, Moloch. So very bad king, and he's on the throne of Judah. This is after David, after Solomon, and Ahaz is a descendant of David, and he's sitting on the throne. So Israel and Judah are two different countries now, and they're fighting with each other, and Ahaz is on the throne in Jerusalem. Bad guy, unrighteous king. And this, this king finds himself where two other countries want to come and take his throne. So where we're going to pick it up in Isaiah chapter 7 is the king has just received word that these other guys want what he has, and he is waiting to see what God is going to do. He is waiting to see what is going to happen with this impending war. And he is going to teach us sort of how not to respond to a waiting season because he ended up crushed 
And I don't know about you guys, but I don't want to repeat somebody else's mistakes. I think that's what the word is for. The word is to show us how to live and have life. And so I want to learn from this evil king and see how we can remain in a restful weight on our good God rather than crushed under a weight. All right? So we're going to pick it up in Isaiah chapter 7. And I'm going to read it to you while it's on the screens. And we're going to kind of skip around a little bit. So bear with me. But Isaiah chapter 7 verse 2. And it says, It was told to the house of David, saying, Serious forces are deployed in Ephraim. So his heart, this is King Ahaz's heart, and the heart of his people were moved as the trees of the woods are moved with the wind. And then the Lord said to Isaiah, go out now to meet Ahaz, you and Sher Jashub, your son, at the end of the aqueduct from the upper pool on the highway to the fuller's field. And say to him, take heed and be quiet. Do not fear. For the Lord, do not fear or be faint-hearted. For these two stubs of smoking firebrands. Now we're going to skip to verse 7. Thus says the Lord your God, it shall not stand, nor shall it come to pass. Go to verse 9. If you will not believe, surely you will not be established. So three signs that you and I can look for when we've gone from waiting to wait. And the first one, if you're taking notes this morning, is that your heart starts to shake. When a crisis or when a, a situation comes into my life, my heart is like, like the leaves before a thunderstorm. You guys know, right before a thunderstorm hits, we've had a lot of experience with those recently. <laughs> the trees start to blow, the leaves start to flutter, and even you'll see if it's been dry, the leaves will kind of show you, they'll turn upside down a little bit because they can feel the moisture in the air and they're turning to receive that. And a lot of times, they're just kind of fluttering, 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 but the, trink, the trunk of the trees relatively stable, but you can hear the rustling. I always think that's a beautiful sound. I love when scripture says the trees of the field shall clap their hands. Whenever the leaves blow in the wind, it sounds like the trees are clapping a little bit. And that sort of that right before the storm, you feel this rustling. You can, you can smell the wind and it smells like rain and you hear the leaves and they're kind of, kind of moving. And that's the way it is with our hearts so many times. When that it thing comes into our lives, the first thing to usually betray us is our heart. Our heart starts fluttering. Our heart starts moving. Our heart starts thinking, what if, what if, what if, what if? And the king and the heart of the people, that's the first thing to start shake. Well, I want to submit to you that the same way God came and met his people and met his king is the same way he's going to come to you when your heart starts shaking. The first thing he did was he sent his word to his people. He sent his word to his people and his king. And you and I, the first moment our hearts start to flutter in our chest a little bit, the first place we have to turn is to the word of the Lord. It's the only thing that's going to calm your heart. It's the only thing that's going to bring your heart into submission and remind your heart who you are in Jesus Christ. Because sometimes your heart will betray you. Scripture says that the heart is wicked. You know, a lot of people say, oh, follow your heart, follow your heart. I'm like, don't follow your heart, don't follow your heart. <laughs> I know many a girl in trouble because she followed her heart, <laughs> you know. 
But we're supposed to follow the word of God, follow the voice of God, follow his heart for us, not our fleshly heart. And when your heart starts shaking, when that thing comes into your life, the word of the Lord comes to you and needs to come to you. Well, the prophet Isaiah isn't walking on the planet today anymore, is he? So how do we receive the word of God? Well, you're doing it right now. You get your family to church on Sunday morning and they receive the word of God this way. Another way is in your closet when you meet with your Savior in private and in prayer and you create a relationship with him so that he knows your voice and you know his voice and you know him like you know your best friend. You open the word of God for yourself and you start to read it. That's how you receive the word of God. You know, it's, it's sort of like good exercise. It's one thing to go to the doctor as soon as you're sick and scared and he gives you something. It's another thing to have built up this equity of relationship so that when that crisis comes, the fluttering in your heart can immediately be met by the word of God. So Ahaz is sitting there and the prophet comes to him and he says, look, look, do not even worry about these guys who are making war with you. God has snuffed them out. They are just smoking firebrands. Don't even worry about that. And when I think about it, it reminds me of like lighting a match. The tip of this match is 2,500 degrees. That's hot. And when you and I face a crisis, it is intense and it is bright and it is hot and it consumes all of our attention. And the closer it inches to our fingers the more real it gets to us. That's where Ahaz is. He can't think about anything else other than the burning flame of this crisis in his face. And the prophet's coming to him and he says, look, I know exactly what you're thinking about, but you need to trust that God's already extinguished this thing. The guys you're worried about, the things you can see in the natural, he's already taken care of. You just need to trust God because if you don't believe, he can't do what he wants to do for you. You know, so many times I get a crisis on the scene and I sit there and I'm like, Lord, help my unbelief. Help me to trust you to do what I know you want to do for me. You fight my battles for me. You died for me once and for all. Help me just to trust you to be you and not panic at the last minute as that flame inches towards my fingers and I start to doubt, who is God really going to do what he says he can do? Because the king's right here, and God's like, look, it looks like a smoking match to you, but you need to know I've already this thing out for you. The prophet Habakkuk was 100 years before the prophet Isaiah. and Habakkuk 2, the prophet is talking to God, and God says, see now what I am going to say. Seeing what the Lord has for you and hearing what the Lord has for you are two totally different things. And sometimes you and I, we get a word from the Lord and we bury in our heart and it's our it. We get a promise from the Lord and we're like, Lord, I'm trusting you to do this for me. Maybe it's a child who you are praying back into the kingdom. It is a relationship you need restored. It's a roof on your house. It's a job. It's rent money. It's four tires for your Toyota. I don't know what your it is. But you are holding on to a promise from God to do it. And I want to encourage you to not only just hold on to the word that God has for you, but like Habakkuk say, Lord, show me what you are trying to say to me. 
because all I see are the kings and the matchhead. And Lord, you need to show me that you've snuffed them out. I not only want to hold on to your word, but I want to see your word and what you're doing in my life. So that's where the king is. He's like, look, look, I want you to get this Ahaz. He has snuffed them out for you. And the other thing he told him was be quiet and stay calm. When my heart is fluttering, my tongue tends to wag. Anybody else there? And what happens is my, my mouth starts voicing what's in my heart, and then my words start creating worlds. So I start talking things and talking things into existence that now I've made a lot more trouble just because this heart was fluttering. And the prophet was wise with his words with the king. Be quiet. <laughs> Stay calm. I have snuffed this thing out for you. Don't let your heart betray you. So for you and I, if we're going to stay in the weight and not the weight, we got to keep our heart in check. And we got to remember, although it flutters, we're holding on to the God who is not one of many, but is the one and only. Yeah. <laughs> he is the one and only. Satan will come to you and he'll say, yeah, Jesus and. No, 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 no. Your God is not one of many. He is the one and only. And he will come to your rescue. Amen? Amen. All right, so your, your heart, signs that you're, you're going from weight to weight, your heart starts shaking. The other one is that your hand is ahead of God. And I'll give you guys, we're going heart, hand, and hope. So that second one is hand. Now, how does your hand get ahead of God? Well, in King Ahaz's story, it's pretty easy. The prophet isn't even to him yet. It's, his word is coming to him. And Ahaz is already ahead of the game checking the city's aqueduct. God had to tell Isaiah, look, you're not going to find the king in the palace. That's not where he's at. Go to the aqueduct in the fuller's field. God knows exactly where you are today. He not only knows where your heart is nervous, where your heart is shaking, he knows where your body is. He knows where you will go when you need something fixed and it's not him. He'll go to what you trust. And so he sends the prophet right to the king checking the city's water supplies because the king knows that if the city is going to be under siege, the name of the game is water in the desert. And whoever has the most water wins. And you just have to withstand the siege. And then eventually those guys, they can't get into your city walls and they run out of water and they go home. So he's checking the city's aqueducts to make sure that his city can just withstand the siege for a while. Well, I sit there and I'm thinking, well, gee, he must be a really good leader. He's doing the best he can. He's trying to get out ahead of this problem. He's checking on the aqueducts. And you and I will tell ourselves the same thing when we try to get out ahead of God. Lord, I'm just trying to do my best. You know, you gave me this job, and so I'm not just going to work 40 hours at it. I'm going to work 80 hours at it. I'm going to make this promotion happen for me, God. You know, income is my problem, so I am going to make more money. Come hell or high water, this is what's going to happen. Well, God, you know what? I know that you want me to be a partner to someone, to, to have a spouse. So I'm just going to keep dating somebody till, till somebody comes up. I'm going to just go keep catching fish, and I'll throw the crazy ones back. But I'm just going to keep my line in the water. I'm going to keep getting after this thing, <laughs> you know? And you and I, what we do when we do that is our hand gets ahead of God, just like Ahaz got ahead of the word of God. He's already ahead of the game. He's checking on aqueducts. And God's like, look, 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 look. You're not even going to need this. Just trust me and believe me for this. And you and I have to do the same thing 
Because our hands will reveal where our hope is. But Ahaz, he's sitting there, and this story is told in Kings and Isaiah and Chronicles. And in Kings, we understand why he's checking the aqueducts. It says in 2 Kings 16.8 that Ahaz took the silver and gold found in the Lord's temple and in the treasuries of the king's palace and sent them to the king of Assyria as a gift. I hear a ringing, gentlemen, and I don't know if that's just in my head or if that's in everyone's head. It's not a voice, I'll tell you that, as we're okay. (laughs) But there's a ringing of feedback. He says, the treasuries of the king's palace and sent them to the king of Assyria as a gift. So the reason that the king is checking on the aqueducts is he's basically sent bribe money to the Assyrians. He's tried to hire mercenaries. And so he's sitting here checking his water supplies because he's like, we got to just hold on until my hired guns get here. Has nothing to do with trusting God. Has everything to do with he is going to figure a way out of this thing for himself. And you and I, we catch ourselves doing the same thing. You know, at the end of the day, folks, you will worship what you think will save you. You will worship what you think will save you. He took the treasures out of the temple and sent them to Assyria because he was convinced they would save him. He robbed God and served another. And you and I, we've got to be so sensitive to that. It doesn't look the same for us. We don't, I don't expect that you guys are going to leave with your chair or take the TVs off the walls or, oh, this would look great in my bathroom. I'm going to take this art home. I don't expect any of you to shoplift what's in Celebration Church. That's not how you, how you steal from the temple today. But we steal from the temple today with where we pledge our allegiance in our heart, where we spend our time, where we spend our talent, what we worship, and that reflects what we think will save us. Look at what you prioritize. And let me tell you something. The prophet, God tells the prophet, take your son to go speak to the king. There are many fights that you are in that are not about you. They are for your children to see how victory is achieved. Because you don't know what fights your kids have down the line, and they need to look back and say, yep, that's how mom and dad did it. Mom and dad gave me a legacy of faith. Mom and dad, I remember this. I remember this clearly, where it was between do we tithe or do we pay rent money? And my parents had to trust God. So, honey, I know we're in a tight spot, but I have this legacy of faith. I've seen how my parents do it. And so I want to just share with you, in the same way Isaiah had to bring his son with him to give this message to the king, you are going to be asked to bring your children to certain fights because they need to see, they need to see how God moves in your life because it's going to be the shoulders they stand on when they go to fight their own fights. So we're sitting here and we know we'll worship what we think will save us. And the king says in Second Chronicles, it says that in his distress, King Ahaz was even more unfaithful to the Lord even more unfaithful to the Lord. Because here's the deal. He was so eager to fix this thing on his own that he turned his back on God and started a chain of disobedience. When you and I, when we don't fight the temptation to turn that weight into a weight, we risk making our hand disobedient to the Lord and creating this chain in our lives where we just turn our back. And our heart turns to stone and our ear gets deaf 
just like King Ahaz. His hand was ahead of God. You will worship what you think will save you, and you will go to what you know. When you get in a hot spot, you will go to what you know. If what you know is your your talent, your skill, your networking, the way you can move it and shake it in your place of business, that's the first thing you will go to when you are in a crisis. You will go to what you know. If the refrigerator is what you know and a pack of Twinkies, you will go to what you know. You will worship what will save you. And you and I have to be in this habit of where we always go to the same place. And when we hit that crisis, we are there. We are there with our Savior who's got it snuffed out for us. You know, if you're trying to decide, well, Sarah, I'm, I'm not sure. I've, I've got my it in my mind. The Lord's kind of brought that to my remembrance, the thing I'm trusting him for. But how do I know if I've gone from waiting to wait? I want to ask you this morning if your arms are tired. The more you are holding something up with your own arm, the more exhausted you will be. And that is how you know you are not in rest, how you are not waiting on the Lord. You know, Jesus tells us in Matthew 11, he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And I'm always struck by that because I'm like, Lord, we all have hard seasons. You told us in this world you will have trouble. We are all going to have, all of our it's are hard. Don't tell me you're it right now. But I know it's hard. But this is the difference, church. You can have a hard season, and it doesn't have to be a heavy season. And I always, when I, when I receive that word, when I receive that mental image of, of take my yoke upon you, I always had the image of Jesus in the covered wagon. Like, who here played Oregon Trail? You're a child of the late 70s, early 80s. We were so cool because our classrooms had those old Apple computers with the green letters and Oregon Trail. Raise your hand right now if you played Oregon. Yes, I'm telling you. And so the little oxen would go. And it's like, your sister died of dysentery. And I was like, oh, bummer. Less for the oxen to pull. Yes. And so the oxen go and it goes, you need to shoot some deer for 50 pounds of food. And you'd shoot these little square green bullets and get these pretend deer. And then the oxen would keep going, you know, because you were on the Oregon Trail, right? And that's the image I have of yoke, an oxen, because I was born in 78. And so I always pictured Jesus in the covered wagon. Get up now. Get up. You're doing a good job, Sarah. Keep it going. Keep it going, girl. We're almost there. That's, I saw Jesus at the reins. But I want to tell you, I was studying this, and that's not where he is. When he says, take my yoke upon you, he is bound to you. He is harnessed with you. And the reason that his burden is light is because he's carrying it with you. That's the cross. That's your promise. You know, he tells us, I no longer live... In Galatians, it says, I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live, I live in faith, not in the flesh. So it's not that he's sitting there going, yeah, get up. He's sitting there going, Sarah, we are bound together in covenant. The cross is born this for you, and we are going to walk through what I have for you. That is the goodness of our God. And I want to tell you right now, if you're in a season and you don't know if you're waiting or if you're waited, the question is, what are you yoked to? Every season in my life that I have felt blistered, that I have felt chafed, that I have felt exhausted, it was never Jesus. It was a yoke I made for myself. 
I had decided this was the way it was going to be done. I had decided this is the time that it needed to be done. I will never forget, Todd and I were expecting Avery. We lived in a one-bedroom apartment in D.C., and I was convinced, because I was pregnant and crazy, that we had to have a two-bedroom apartment. And when a pregnant woman says she wants a two-bedroom apartment, you just better say, yes, ma'am. That's how it works. And I was like, Todd, you know, Todd wanted to put a crib in a closet. I said, no, no, no. This baby is first born. And my baby ain't going in no closet. You get in the closet. You know what I'm saying? Because I was pregnant and I was crazy. So I wore my husband down. And I said, we are getting a two-bedroom, but we can't afford a two-bedroom apartment. Sarah, I don't have a piece about a two-bedroom apartment. I said, I'll show you your piece. I'll show you your piece. Your piece is eight and a half months pregnant. You need to find yourself a two-bedroom apartment. So we shopped and shopped and shopped, and Todd found one across the street because we didn't want to, like, die trying to park our car. So we, lived, we liked living in safe neighborhoods. I know we were so spoiled. And we finally found this apartment. And I will never forget how much it was a month. It was $1,800 a month. Yeah, that was 10 years ago. And so we went from paying about $700 a month to $1,800 a month. But remember, I was pregnant and crazy. What is money? I'm bringing life into this world, you know? Y'all see Todd hug that man. God has an inheritance for him because he has lived with this. So we moved in that apartment because I was going to make a way. I was going to fix this with my own hand. And we were in that apartment exactly 30 days, not even 30 days. I was still on maternity leave. And my boss said, hey, bring the baby up. We want to all see the baby. So we go to Capitol Hill and I'm showing the baby to all these people. And he pulls me in a side room. And he says, hey, have you thought about where you want to raise this baby? I said, yes, myself. (laughs) You know, we're going to raise this baby here in Virginia, right here in the D.C. suburbs. You know, I'm going to come back to work. I'm going to fight the good fight. And he said, well, what if you could raise your baby outside the People's Republic of the District of Columbia? And I was like, I'm intrigued. And he's like, I got a job in Texas. And I said, oh, I don't know. I don't know. That's really far from family. And he wrote a number on a piece of paper, and he slid it across the table. And I looked at the number, and I said, tell me where in Texas. (laughs) Our salaries were incredibly increased, and our cost of living was cut in half. And he said, I want you to move down before you come back from maternity leave. I had just signed a lease on a two-bedroom, $1,800-a-month apartment. And the lease break penalty was about $4,000. When your hand gets ahead of God, the consequences can be a lot more than first and last month's rent can be a lot more than the strain you put on your marriage because you won't listen to your husband's counsel. It can be much, much higher stakes. But that was a very good experience for me so that when I am in a season of waiting, I do not rush ahead of God and do something my own way and turn that season of waiting into a burden I was never supposed to carry. That's where we're at. So the last point here, your heart, your hand, and your hope. Your hope 
is misplaced. Another way to say it is you win the battle, but you lose the war. Everybody always wonders, well, what happened to Ahaz? How did things turn out? Did those evil kings, you know, did they, did they prevail? And the answer is that the kings of Assyria got there in time and fought the battle for him. But it cost Ahaz dearly. He won the battle, but he lost the war. The prophet is coming to Ahaz and he's pleading with him. I want this for you. Ask me for a sign. Ask me for a sign. Maybe maybe if you see God move in this thing, you'll trust me for it. And Ahaz is very pious and he says, no, 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 I don't need a sign. And I honestly wonder if he didn't ask for a sign because he was afraid it would change his mind. Have you stopped talking to God because you're afraid he's right? You know, oh no, I'm doing this thing, God. I'm good. I'm good. No, no, you don't have to check on me. I'm good. I'm good. We're getting a two bedroom apartment. La, 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 la. Don't talk to me. Is that where you're at? And Ahaz doesn't want to ask God for a sign because he doesn't want his mind changed. And the prophet Isaiah comes to him and he says, You won't ask me for a sign. I'll give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bring forth a son, and they will call his name Emmanuel, God with us. And Ahaz is like, What? That's a sign? What good is a pregnant woman going to do me now? I got kings coming this minute. And it reminds me of 1 Corinthians 1.18 where it says, the, To the perishing, the cross is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God unto life. Whoa! Your friends will see you fighting in your crisis and they're going to be like, why aren't you doing something about this? You know you should go back to school. You know what? You should try to start this business. You know what? You need to call that person and give them a piece of your mind. You know what? You better tell that man, give you a two-bedroom apartment. I don't know what your it is. But your hope is misplaced when it's in anything but the cross. And your friends will think, oh my gosh, the cross, what's the cross going to do for you? Because to the perishing, it is foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. (laughs) That's where we're at, folks. When your hope and your allegiance is in anything but the cross, I can tell you right now, your weight is going to turn into a weight. Bottom line, you will end up chafed, blistered, and exhausted, and that was never God's will for your life, never his will for your life. You know, I want to close with this thought. When you ask, you know, well, how did things turn out for Ahaz? Well, the king of Assyria got there in time, and it cost him dearly. It not only cost him all the, the country's treasures that were stored in the temple, we read in 2 Kings sixteen eighteen that to satisfy the king of Assyria, he removed from the Lord's temple the Sabbath canopy they had built in the palace and he closed the outer entrance for the king. What he's saying is the king never walked in the temple again. He broke down the altars and he cut up the utensils and destroyed them so that no sin sacrifice could be made for the people. He did all of this because he wanted to please the king of Assyria. Yeah, that king of Assyria bailed him out. He didn't lose his kingdom, but he forfeited his soul. Jesus said, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and you forfeit your soul? Ahaz, yeah, good job. Assyrians took care of something I already told you I would take care of. God had a two-bedroom apartment in store for me. He actually had a four-bedroom house and a master plan community in store for me. 
says, yeah, Sarah, you go sign an $1,800 a month lease because you're pregnant and you're crazy, but I've already got your housing situation under control. And you and I, we're sitting here today, and God has your it taken care of. He has what you need in the season you need it. It says in Proverbs, the Lord adds wealth to the righteous and no sorrow with it. Hallelujah. I've got a lot of things in my life that I've grabbed and I strained for and I had sorrow to go with it. But you know what I know when it's from the Lord? It's easy, it's light, and it's sorrow-free. Amen. Well... I'm going to close with this, and it's, I want to show you two pictures. They're from New York City. And outside of the GE building in New York City, and this is in Manhattan, is this amazing sculpture of Atlas holding the world on his shoulders. And in Greek mythology, he was actually cursed with this burden. This was not a privilege that he was the one that got to carry the world on his shoulders. He was actually punished and cursed with this and you can see his muscles are straining and he's taking one step at a time but he's going to do it he's going to hold that world up and he's going to do it on his own might and his own strength and it's his entire life as a burden his entire walk well when you look through that sculpture you kind of see this gothic looking church this beautiful steepled church it looks like it almost be like in Paris or something in Europe right you just don't see steeples like that in the United States very often and across the street from the god of atlas is St Patrick's Cathedral in New York City and if you walk in St Patrick's Cathedral you're going to see another man holding the world except it's a Jesus as a child with the world in the palm of his hand. You and I face a decision today whether we're going to carry our burdens like the God Atlas and strain and blister and chafe and be exhausted by it, or if you and I are going to give our world to Jesus and live our lives in the palm of his hand and no rest, and know a light burden, and know an easy yoke, and trust him with our it. The choice is that simple. You can carry it, or you can allow the Lord to. And I'm here to tell you that there is rest for you. There is refreshment for you. There is joy for you that the it that you are waiting for can be a hard it, but you can know joy in the season that you are waiting for it in, that you can know peace that passes understanding even though it is not in your life yet because your God is not bound by time. He is not bound by money or space. He has it for you. And this is a better place to live your life in the waiting than in the weight like Atlas.